save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. I would like to tell you a story. Knife Talk is sponsored by Evenheat, the manufacturers of the finest knife treat ovens available. Find your next heat treat oven at evenheat-kiln.com. Welcome, everybody, to another fine episode of Knife Talk Podcast. This is where we hang out, talk knives, talk edges. We try to answer your questions, help you out with anything we can. Uh, we also bitch and moan a little bit. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I'm going to kick it off with uh, introductions. We have, of course, as ever, Mr. Jeff Fader of Fader Knives. And uh, this week we have a very extra special guest hailing all the way from Hawaii and at recording time. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. We got a real trooper with us. We got Neil Kami Moore in the house. Woo! Outstanding. What's Winnie. up? What's up? What's up? Ugh. How you guys how you guys doing this fine, fine morning? How's this past week been for you? Well, the funny thing is, is we were just talking about it. You know, it's three o'clock in the morning for Neil. And usually he said, he said, well, tell us what you said before. What you should have you been doing? <laughs> oh, no, I was supposed to be going out with my wife and and her friends. They go out, do a little bit of dancing, have a little bit of fun. But I didn't want to come back from the bar and be like, <laughs> be only be speaking pigeon. Nobody would understand a word I'm saying. <laughs> oh, part of me totally wishes you had. It would have been unbelievable. No, no, just to let you know, Neil was on the. If you wanted to hear, Neil was. This is the return of Neil. Uh, he his episode is actually Craig tells us all the time. Your episode of Knife Talk back in the day is still the number one ranked uh, episode we've ever done, even to this day. So. Congratulations! Oh, I mean, you could have followed her up with a little cool. pigeon. You could have got a little drunk this time and threw a little pigeon. And I'm sure you still would have gotten number two. Uh, or it might got zero. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so, Neil. So, Neil's an incredible. I, I'm a, I'm fascinated by you, and we've we 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 know we've met each other at the Blade Show, and I'm a, I'm fascinated by your story. Um, one of the things that has been fascinating to me is your your Hawaiian, your third generation, uh, second third generation Hawaiian. Your father was a contractor, your grandfather was a barber, and your great grandfather was a blacksmith. Yep. yep. And and I, I and I'm and I'm not Hawaiian. I'm third generation born Hawaii. Uh, my family immigrated from Japan. My dad's side, my Kamimura side, and my mom is Okinawan. 
and huh. they both uh, were immigrants uh, for the sugarcane industry. Uh, and my great grandpa's came in like uh, early 1900s, and then he started his first business. Uh, he was the first Japanese person to so own his business in Hawaii, uh, uh, 1930-something, uh, T. Kamimura Blacksmith. And so uh, his name was Teiji Kamimura, and my name is Neil Teiji Kamimura. And so mm. that's what the T in my knives all stand for, is the heritage that kept my family in Hawaii. Yeah, I love it. So when he came over and he started doing... I'm fascinated by this idea of the cane knife because I don't really, I mean, I'm from New York. What, do I, what the hell do I know about sugarcane? I've never even, I've seen sugarcane on the side of the Bronx, guys selling sticks of it on the side of the Bronx. So what's the, what is a sugarcane knife and, you know, what did, how did, who did, who is he selling it to? What was the, the, the idea of what that knife was? Uh, sugarcane knives are mainly made from the recycled uh, bandsaw blades, like that they used to, you know, mill wood. And so traditionally, they were just, uh, they're real thin. And so they would forge the, the, you know, the cutting edge and then add these uh, hook on the back and then, you know, put some bolts and wood handles on it and then sharpen it. And my great-grandfather was the only person to forge them and do a right-handed and a left-handed one. And he had some special, you know, ancient Japanese <laughs> like, <laughs> heat treat to him, which I'm pretty sure he just very low-tempered it like a chef knife and did an edge quench on it, is what I think he did. But uh, supposedly his... Uh, his uh, cane knives weren't able to be uh, sharpened with a file. So that means they were, you know, high Rockwell. And mm-hmm. uh, they just were really, really good. And uh, so the w- they're really hard to cut. It's almost like bamboo with, like, fibers in without being hollow. That's what sugarcane is like. So the way he made his knives were really good. And at the time, each sugarcane... A uh, company had their own blacksmith or multiple blacksmiths on every island from the Lanai, Maui, or whatever, all over the place. I'm I'm not sure if it was Lanai, but Maui and other islands. And uh, they actually would put my great-grandfather's knives and ship them to other places, which is really unheard of. And that's why, um, for the fact that he was the first Japanese person to so own his business, because back then the Japanese community in Hawaii would band together in groups of 10 to own a business, and he owned his on his own. And so he kind of was, uh, you know, he brought the first stick welder to Hilo, you know, like, and started welding and uh, a lot of history there, you know. That's amazing. Yeah. Have you, have you ever made it? A- like I would imagine that there are pictures of what he had made. Have you ever have you ever made your version of his cane knife? Uh I haven't made a version of his cane knife because uh, you know, I mean, pretty much you need to find a bandsaw blade that's, you know, 6 inches wide and like 2 feet long and I've never really come across one hmm. and you know, I, I I do want to. I have uh, one of my best friends, uh, Waylon uh, in Waimea from the home, hometown, you know, where I grew up in. 
he actually found one of the Ola uh, sugarcane company uh, trucks, uh, nineteen thirty-eight uh, International, and then he chopped, channeled it, and body dropped it, and put a mailbox truck, uh, right right hand <laughs> steering. I mean, it's crazy. It's all Frankenstein together, and uh, but it has the original logo on the door, and so I'm gonna make him a cane knife to match it because. His family started out with the sugarcane. He's third generation born. I'm third generation born. Our families were in different camps because they would put the nationalities. So the Portuguese, he's Portuguese. So all the Portuguese people would be in one, all the Japanese, all the Filipino, all the Chinese would all be in separate camps, but they had to work together. So our history in Hawaii is based around the same thing. So we're kind of doing this truck, uh, you know, in remembrance of our families, you know. Crazy. And you, I feel like you and I have talked about this in the past, and you have, there are actually people still around today who had direct relationships or knew your great-grandfather. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Like, me and Waylon, I've known Waylon for about seven years now, but when I went to his family's party, like, you know, all of his family had either taken their car to my, my great-grandfather, because he also worked on cars. Like for welding, either took their That's cars there. That's where you get there. it from. Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, took his cars there, or they had a uh, lot of people still own cane knives from him uh, that they passed down. Uh, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It, Hawaii back then was really tight knit community. So if you if you're third generation born, or your families know each other, you know, like, especially in that type of thing where blacksmithing was still needed then. My grandpa died when I was nine in like 1990 something, you know, 90, 90 I think. Small. And uh, so, you know, I never worked with him. I don't own a single tool from him. My, uh, my grandpa's brother sold off everything he had. Uh, he had a little giant. I actually been on the look for it forever because I know it didn't leave this island. I just can't find it. And uh, but yeah, I mean, Hawaii is a small community back then. You know, all the original OG families know each other for sure. You gotta find that little giant, Neil. Oh my God! Yeah, I have pictures. I have pictures of it, and we've we've tried to track it down. Actually, Vent, uh, Vince Evans worked on that power hammer. And because uh, he actually knows my great grandfather, Vince is from Hilo too, so they were like neighbors. And so Vince actually has some knives he made with my great grandpa, and uh, uh, he was trying to help me track it down. He gave me a few numbers where he thought it went, and uh, I called them, but they they didn't know. Uh. And and for anybody who uh, who doesn't know who Vince Evans is, Vince Evans is essentially uh, the, one of the lead American scholars on ancient and antique, uh, I guess, medieval weaponry in the United States. He he's like the top guy. Like in Sweden, it's Peter Johnson, but in the United States, it's it's uh, it's Vince Evans, and he he's an incredibly talented guy. He actually just won Best Sword at Blade Show. Um, so and that, that sword was amazing. It was insane. It, it was like <laughs> you, it literally is a museum piece, but yeah. beyond. That's crazy to have that kind of legacy still around you from your grandfather after a hundred years. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously you said he just passed in the nineties, but but still, like great grandfather. 
sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry. Great grandfather, yeah. So you know, I I tell you a funny story about my great grandfather. The only thing I really remember about him was that when I walked into his shop, I mean, he he must have he must have been like. I mean, he was probably like four foot something like because I remember being 10 years or nine years old and we were almost the same height. And he had just the most beast hands you've ever seen. And his shop was just filled with crap. And he had a hairless dog. And I could never figure out why his dog was hairless because he was so addicted to show you. Um, that's, uh, what do you guys call it? Soy sauce? Soy sauce. Soy sauce. Yeah. Soy sauce. That he would put it on the dog's food and it made the dog lose all his what? hair. Like, that's, oh all I that's all I remember about my great grandfather is like, really like, he was a pretty stubborn person. He never spoke English because it was dishonorable for him. He only spoke hmm. Japanese. So I've never even had a conversation with him. I don't speak Japanese, you know? Yeah. So that's so maybe that's why all these friends of ours are losing all their hair. <laughs> Too much for you, boo. Yeah, well, listen, maybe Josh Scott. Maybe that's why Josh Scott wears his hat so much because you know, too much soy sauce in the, in Ohio. So <laughs> Too much sodium. I'm 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 also one of the things that you do that's very uh, that I it's it's amazing to me is you 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 really you travel around and you you meet with other knife makers master bladesmiths and you and you have the opportunity to learn from them and it's just it's very envious because you know all the things you're learning and being able to kind of pick up tricks and stuff and and be and just surround yourself with this you know just incredible talent it must make you just very satisfied well, and something else to add to that is that I think is really incredible is uh, obviously you have an, an amazing followership on Instagram. And so you're taking the opportunity to also put them on and help bring light and awareness to who they are and their skill and their craft. And I think that's also awesome. But like, tell us about it. Like, what has it been um, like? So working with uh, all these people. I just made three years in knife making at Blade Show. Um, and the first year I was completely self-taught. I had never met another knife maker until my eighth month of knife making. I went on Forging Fire. Um, at that time I was making knives with an angle, variable speed angle grinder. And, uh, right before I left, I ordered a Grizzly, one of those Grizzly grinders. And, uh, I went on Forging Fire and I met Demetrius Papatrianofilio. <laughs> and uh, that's definitely a Greek name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. I met I met Demetrius there. I, I I landed in New York City where they film in Brooklyn. I opened the door to the taxi or to the driver, and Demetrius was sitting there. And I was like, as soon as I saw D, I was like, bro, we're gonna be friends. He's like the nicest dude. And then we went and we competed. I ended up winning that show. But he was so helpful to me, you know, like, you know, at night we would sit there and we would talk about, like, how we would temper. I never made a sword. I never, you know, uh, tempered something that big or forged something that big. And he was like, well, if you do make it, he's like, this is, you know, this is Ed Caffrey's, like, recipe. You should Google it. You should look it up. Like, he was super helpful. No competition there. And he was making knives for a long time. I ended up winning that episode. And I told him, bro, I want to fly you out to Hawaii. 
you know, because I want to continue to train under you. And uh, then from there, I didn't have a chance to because I got back. And then uh, they wanted me right back to go champion to champions like three and a half months later. I went back. I competed. I came in second. Um, I met Ray, you know, Ray Smith. He's a master smith. Amazing dude. Um, you know, Kelly. Uh, Theo, you know, like they're all really awesome people, and um, but still, I'd never really trained under buddy anybody. Anytime I meet knife makers, I was competing against them. So when I got home, I bought Demetrius's ticket, he flew to Hawaii, he trained me, I got a little bit of things, and I enjoyed it so much, you know. And actually, a funny story is Demetrius lives in Kona, he's my you know, his shop is neighboring to my shop now. Uh, because he loved Hawaii so much, he ended up moving here, and huh. now you know we hang out, you know, uh, every week, you know. But uh, that experience with learning from him uh, held me at a higher accountability, and I love being uncomfortable. And so, like, that's what I feel is a mark of greatness. If you want to be great, you have to live uncomfortably every day, and so that I like mm. that. So I ended up taking a little tour. I ended up flying to pennsylvania and i trained under jay nielsen uh for a couple days then i went and saw ray smith that was amazing i got to see his log cabin house that he forged every nail in his house that's oh cool <laughs> oh my you know, God. That, that that's a gangster right there a dude. he's an amazing person then i went and uh, did some work with theo then i went to work with ryu if most of you don't know me and ryu are Two different people. <laughs> they get confused <laughs> all the time. All, all you guys think us Asians look alike. These racist um, listeners. They're so yeah, racist. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, for, so from there, I kind of like did that tour and I loved it so much. I learned so much, uh, you know, and I, I was literally at Sh Blade, uh, Blade Show for the first time. And I was following this guy, Mareko Malmasi, and I was like, well, the, that, that name sounds local. He's got to be Polynesian. You know what I mean? And I met him at Blade Show, and uh, I told him, I said, bro, you ever want to come out to Hawaii, I'll buy a ticket. And uh, when I got home, like a couple months later, we did that. And that was the biggest growth in in training because we spent two weeks together. I, was, I did Damascus about six or eight times prior to him just to kind of warm up to at least I know kind of how it works. But then my actual, the first real Damascus work was with it, with Mareko and, uh, it changed my life, like, uh, changed my game. Like it took me to a whole nother level to have somebody in my own shop using my tools, showing me and like, you know, and you know, brothers for life, obviously, but oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> And then, uh, but yeah, I mean, and then when at, I went to SHOT Show and I met with Recoil and Recoil wanted to capture some of that. And so uh, that was a great experience. So from there, you know, I got to film Johnny Stout and Harvey Dean's Hammerin in Texas. And uh, there was Logan Pierce there. There was tons of great makers like Bubba Grouch. Like, all these dudes, like, just amazing brotherhood right there. Then I did, me and Mareko shot, uh, we shot uh, uh, Travis's Hammer In. 
that was amazing. I got a private uh, little. That's where I pull my clout. Uh, is I got to train <laughs> under uh, Michael Quisenberry. There you go. Um, whatever it takes. A, whatever it takes. Yeah. And then I went and just filmed Jason Knight and then Steve Schwartzer. Amazing. What a what a I mean what a group of of people to learn under and it seems as though every time I've seen any video of you guys you're always laughing and smiling and and having a good time and kind of gaining that more than just being a teacher and a student it's just you're kind of like you know that idea of brotherhood is is really really awesome. Oh, you should not a lot. There's no place in the world that where me and Jason Knight should be together. And then uh, we're, we're, we're on the verge of getting arrested every 10 minutes. But then, then I met Steve, and Steve is like, I want Steve to be my dad, and I want his wife, Laura, to be my mom. They're like the two most amazing people in the planet. If you ever have an opportunity to train under Steve... Dude, that guy has been, oh man, uh, words can't describe how talented and how smart he is and his hospitality and how special his wife is, Laura, and her, uh, she makes Gaggle knives and uh, they're just amazing. Like she was a journeyman ABS. She showed me a picture of her taking her ABS test in like the 90s. And she's in a pencil skirt and a cute shirt and high heels. And she's doing the uh, two-by-four cut and a one-inch <laughs> rope. And there was two women in all of the ABS at that time. It's like That's the incredible. legacy that they have combined should not be forgotten. I mean, we're talking about a guy who invented uh, canister Damascus. He's the first person to use to go somewhere, have high carbon steel ground up and then use it in pattern welding. I mean, this guy has been breaking the rules, you know, before I was born. You know? He's, yeah. <laughs> he's a, such a, he's such a fascinating guy. I, I tell you, I talked to him at Blade Show for a long time and I felt the same way. I wish he was my dad too. I, 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 I'm, I'm amazed at how, as I'm amazed at how supportive I'm not amazed. He's an incredibly supportive guy for young people. He's such a he's such a wealth of information. And that little video clip you sent, you posted, of him forging off the canister of a canister of Damascus, like squeezing toothpaste out of a tube without a grinder, without a hammer. He just kind of like sloughed the skin off like a snake. That was unreal. He's the wizard, bro. He's the wizard. He's he's I mean and that I it, I could have put a vi- Instagram live video on him. I don't know how old he is, but dude, we worked 14 hours a day and and he just kept like I mean I, I'm a pretty I I can work pretty hard. Mareko knows that. And he, dude, he is, he's, he's, I don't know, what is he, 70? I don't he's know what 73. he is. He's 73. He's yeah. 73, I think. I think he's 78. 78? He's 80. Yeah. He oh. can hang, dude, not only can he hang with me, he can outwork me. But a lot of people don't know about Steve. He's a world record bench press holder. What? Yeah, no. he is. And he still holds the record for whatever I don't know how it works because I don't lift weights, but like he still has world records. Um, he's a m- master martial artist, and uh, and also 
he can, you know, I, I was able to, I told him one of my bucket lists is to do a million layer blade, but to do it the, in a way of where it's folded on an anvil, which he has civil war anvils, like, Crazy. like amazing anvils. So I hand, I hand folded, hand set welded. And then once they were set welded by hand, then I would draw them out on a power hammer. And then, uh, and then uh, to do a million layer blade, and I I did it in about. Uh, I, I mean, we did it in hours. I mean, and I I came across a lot of problems, but I mean, he just he just every time I came across a problem like a bubble or a D lamb, like he showed me how to work it through, which was yeah. amazing, you know. And I had tons of D lambs and tons of bubbles. Like I must have had about six bubbles come up and he just showed me how to get rid of those bubbles and it goes against everything that you know we know now as far as like dry welding you know or, or yeah. the no flux club you know like that <laughs> that whole concept which is is still amazing i still do it but when you train under somebody that long uh, and you come across problems like that now you know how to get rid of them and that's why like I'm trying to blend it too. You cannot move forward without learning to pass, you know. For sure. Very cool. Yeah, that would, it would be incredible to go work with him. I, I, I'll I take really you would there, love bro. to get down I'll there. I'll take you there. I'll take you there. <laughs> oh, we'll go. Road trip. Road trip. Road trip. Well, I'm just gonna just stop us real quick and just do a quick read for uh, Clarix Metalworks, our first sponsor. Clarix Metalworks. Uh, C L A R Y X Metalworks.com. 5% off all their grinders if you use the promo code KNIFETALK5. Uh, it's a vertical uh, horizontal grinder. Everything's built in European factories. They all come with a VFD, three different configurations, fully articulating tool rests, easily changing to positions for horizontal grinding or any space in between. The controls are on the base. There's a tool tray, extra plug for lights and dust collection. You can have a choice of colors, whatever you want. I guess. Uh, very inexpensive shipping through Europe, also internationally. They, you can get rotary platens, large wheels, small wheel surface grinding. Attachments are coming soon. Get your BG Pro version 2 grinder. Go to Clarix Metalworks. Put in Knife Talk 5 to get 5% off. Clarix Metalworks, thanks for sponsoring the podcast. All right. So, something I want to ask you about, Neil. It, um that you've been up to lately you've been doing you've been kind of cruise, cruising around and and offering or being asked to do keynote speeches and talks like the sornex and um i mean i guess if you don't want to get into it we can just cut this out <laughs> we'll have no, Greg cut it out but wants. but um i would love to hear uh just like your take on your experience cruising around and doing these talks and stuff um yeah so i you know, I I have one of the largest Instagrams in the knife make as the knife maker uh, community goes. You know, I'm at like three hundred and eighty thousand, whatever. Like, you know, uh, it's and the worst thing I think about social media is that you know, basically you're showing this highlight reel, and sometimes your highlight reel can make other people feel. Uh, you know, bad about themselves. And that's the last thing that I want. I want people to connect with me on a real level and realize that I have struggles. I want people to understand my story, that I didn't just trip and fall into being a knife maker. 
you know and so uh my first year of knife making uh this high school in my hometown asked me to give a motivational speech and i went down there and i gave it and uh i did an instagram uh, facebook live and some people saw it and they really enjoyed it um and then uh and then it just grew from there you know i work with uh olukai shoe company i did one for them and their group and then uh and then from there my last one i did was with uh sornex and uh they're a they create fitness performance equipment for like the UFC, NFL, every major league, every military thing that you can make. And, and they do it all right there in South Carolina. So cold road steel comes in one end, it gets laser cut, machine, CNC, whatever, and powder coated and spits out the other end. It's a really cool process. Um, and uh, they have motivational speecher, speakers there, like professional speakers. Cameron Haynes was there, like, uh, you know, like all these all these dudes that have podcasts and are coaches. And, and then they had me, a guy that doesn't lift weights. And, uh, you know, I gave a speech in front of, I don't know, it was like 400-something people. And, and uh, I just shared my story, you know, because I was a really miserable person. You know, I had attempted suicide twice myself. Uh, the reason why I started making knives, if you listen to my first podcast, was because my mom had committed suicide. And uh, I was, you know, I restored uh, vintage cars as a hobby and it just wasn't working for me. And some my one of my great friends uh, who taught me a lot about metal fabricating brought me a forge and... Uh, and a half of an anvil, and he told me, "You love Forge and Fire. You love Jesse James and his his that video with Yuri Hoffy and uh, and Jerry Fist. He's like, you know, your great grandfather. It's in your blood. You should try it." And I tried it. Uh, the same week, my mom died, and uh, uh, I made a knife from my 1949 Cadillac Spring that I cut off to put hydros on. And uh, I would, that was it. Like, I knew it. The moment I hit it and when it was hot, I knew that this is what I needed to be doing for the rest of my life. And I, you know, and that's what I did. Okay. I, it, it is, and we, we've, I've said this to you in, uh, at Blade Show, you know, I, I think that it's, it, it goes without saying that what you do for people and uh, highlighting uh, depression, highlighting uh, suicide and, and telling your story and finding something to to deal with that in a not, a not necessarily a clinical therapy therapy way but like a very positive way to <clears throat> pardon me to deal with this is just so it's just so great that you're highlighting this and showing people what you're doing to 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 deal with the you know the the story of your life in a positive manner it's just it's just awesome and and what you do for a lot of people it's very inspiring especially you know the people who listen to this podcast and the people who work as makers generally are very by themselves you know you, that's why we when we're doing this podcast we say a lot of times we're trying to keep you company because you're you know you when you're listening to podcasts at a job anyway usually your boss won't let you listen to podcasts cuz you're you're fucking around anyway but like when you're by yourself we're we're we're, we're solitary people and and there are things that can go through your life that are tough and how you deal with them is 
is super important. And what you do, to, what, the help that you give people and the, the encouragement and to show, look, you can deal with this without having to, you know, resort to, you know, things that are not as healthy as you could be is really, really, it's really important. And what you do is just, I'm, I'm just saying this now, it's, it's super important to me as a person who has depression in my family, a suicide in my family. It's, it's very uh, admirable and um, I've, I have nothing but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm indebted to you in that regards. No, no. I mean, you know, basically what I tell people is that, you know, nobody great really comes from an easy life. And so when you have struggles and hardships, the reason why people look towards suicide is because the feeling of not being able to go backwards and to to change the past. And so they feel they can't move forward. So they want to end their life and so or at least think about so for me i didn't really want to end my life it's all about power like when my ex-wife wanted to leave me who i loved i mean she i was with her since i was 14 to 33 years old and we were married for 15 years and together for 19 i I could use that as power over her, right? Like she would have to live with the fact that she killed me. And I used to use that as power. And when you have to admit that and say that you're a bitch and, you know, you just want to be loved and all you know is guilted love, you know? And once you can admit that and find out who you are not is the first thing you need to do. Then you can find out who you are. And then once you realize that that's, that was just a chapter in your life, and you can turn that page and pick up the pencil and rewrite your future and rewrite your character. Sky's the limit for you and realizing what you're capable of, which is anything you want. You just have to grab it in front of you, you know? That's the story of blacksmithing. It's going forward. You can't go back. Yeah. You can't go back when you're forging. When you're when you're forging a piece of hot metal, there is no redos. You either go forward or you start over. With uh, with uh, with learning that your mistakes can be fixed. On maybe not this one, but the next one. You know what you've done wrong, and maybe you can go forward in a positive manner. I think it's a, it's it's one of those things that's always been in my mind in terms of um, the value of blacksmithing as a mindset. So, I it's incredible, incredible. Yeah. Also, yeah, I mean, while you're yeah, doing these, ahead. I was just going to say, also, while he's doing these talks, I don't know if you know this, Jeff, but he's also forging on steel half the time. <laughs> I did see that. It is, wow. it is a, <laughs> he's doing, which is amazing. And not to mention, your swing is the, is the most, I don't know how you keep going. That swing of yours is so ferocious that it's like, I watch you, <laughs> I watch your swing, and all I can think of is, how the fuck does this guy do this all day long? I, I, it's it's incredible. You're, it's just all will and inner fortitude, you know? The reason why I forge a knife during my speech is the same thing you just said. And it's, and it's because I told them, you know, they're watching me forge and it captures their attention, right? Because I'm bringing Hades down on this, yeah. on this uh, metal. You're and, bringing the razzle-dazzle. And, and what I tell them is, that, and when I'm done with the blade, I tell them, like, listen... Life is like this piece of steel. It gets overheated, beat on, stretched, forced, you know, and if you don't know how to capture it and forge it, uh, if you don't have the tools, 
then you can be broken, you can be warped, you can be useless. But if you have the tools in life, and that's what I try and share with people, is some of the things that work for me. And if it touches their heart, they should use it because it's nothing new, you know. And uh, uh, then you can be forged into a tool that lasts forever, you know. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, it's interesting because one of the things I used to say as a joke was I used to say nostalgia is is it's nostalgia isn't good as an artist. If you're an artist, I, I get nervous when my my father was a painter and he used to say he never used to sell his work because he felt like he didn't admit it, but he felt like I'm afraid that I can't do better than this. And it got to the point where he coveted his work to the point where he he felt he had this. It was a stunting mindset of the next one is not going to get better. Or the next one might not get better. So I need to hold on to this. And the idea of marching forward and having this mindset of the next one is going to get better. I have no choice. And I don't covet this because I am very excited about the next one. It's That's a very positive thinking way uh, of thinking about not only your work, but what you're doing, but also uh, how you work as in life. I mean, I... I use blacksmithing in general as a an allegory as a allegory for life because it's it's this idea of like you're taking ingredients and proper technique or technique and then you're giving it to someone and then you're you're going through steps and you're you know you're elevating this craft to the point where you have that inner satisfaction of seeing something through. So I'm incredibly you know like I said you're you're you, there's a lot to you and, and you do a lot for a lot of people. <laughs> well, I mean, I just, you know, like, I think that one of the reasons why my Instagram is where it is and my popularity is where it is, not because I'm a good knife maker. I'm a mediocre knife maker, uh, but I think it's there because people can connect with me. I, I have an open book policy when it comes to media. But you're also yeah. a student. For, I mean, you, 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 I, 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 you're a student for life. And that's the best part. Like, oh, I think yeah. that you going, seeing all these guys, Steve Schwartzer and, and Jason Knight and all these guys, you, you're, you, the eagerness to get better, the eagerness to kind of go forward and learning these techniques. That's why when I think about your great, great grandfather's cane knife, in my mind, I'm thinking it would be interesting to see if Neil made his version of a cane knife, not necessarily out of a bandsaw, but using the techniques that he's learned over the year, over these past few years with Moreco and the Mosaic Damascus and the, you've, what you've done with the Mosaic Damascus in such a short period of time is incredible. It would be interesting to me for me to, for me to see how your journey as an educate and education as a bladesmith would translate to how you would envision, envision your great great grandfather's cane knife. That's all. It's a selfish yeah, I mean, thing of selfish I, thing for me to say. I I made a knife for my grandma, you know, who was married to my grandfather before he passed. And so she was around the family and uh <laughs> she she saw my knife and she was like she's like, Oh she's like, You smoke him already. She's like, This thing is amazing and I was like, Oh thanks. Wow. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of modern technology you know what he was making uh you know he he was breaking ground then and i want to be breaking ground now and i tell every new knife maker that comes up to me and say that i inspire them which was hundreds at blade show right marco yeah it's crazy we uh i tell them you're not in competition with other makers like when i look at guys like mirrors I look at yeah. Mareko, like like and anybody right anybody like really breaking ground like 
I am so inspired by them, but I'm not intimidated by them because it's not what I do. And I'm not in competition with anybody. The only person as a knife maker you're in competition with is yourself and your style and finding your style and, uh, and pushing yourself to the limits of what you can do. And people will always see that and recognize that and buy that. And so never worry about, oh, I need to be a master engraver. I need to be doing Damascus. I mean, there's guys like Harvey who's been doing it, you know, uh, he's a 100 percenter. Harvey Dean, I mean, he's an amazing, amazing knife maker. I I'm not in competition with him because I don't do what he does. You know what I mean? Like, but I can be inspired by him and that will keep the positivity moving forward in bladesmithing. <laughs> Ultimately, that's really all it, it, it is. It's it's finding your own satisfaction in what you're doing, but and 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 being inspired, being inspired by other people instead of being envious of other people is critical to your growth. Because if you just were, if you're just trying to chase the guy in front of you, you're missing out on the journey that you're taking, which is ultimately what you're getting out of knife making or blacksmithing or making anything. You know, it's at the end of the day, you're in the box with your toes up. And you with nothing, and and but you need to have that full life of, of 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 satisfaction in what you're doing, and not worrying about yeah I I I couldn't be a, I couldn't my grandfather was a, a cellist in the New York Philharmonic, and he was like second chair cellist back in the day, and the competition he had to deal with was brutal. One of the best cellists in the world, uh, top fifty, so he was constantly people were gunning for his spot. And what happened was it was just this non-stop, I mean, to his old age. I mean, he was playing the cello until his, you know, until until his old age. So he was constantly every year trying to trying to compete against guys, younger guys who wanted his spot. And it, what happened was it really ruined him because it made him, you know, when he saw his children, he made his children uh, nothing was ever good enough, and it just like it kind of crippled not only him but his his kids. And I, so I get very nervous about competition in that sense because I think it it definitely it stomps out the joy of what you're trying to do. Mm. So yeah, what an artsy background. Damn right! <laughs> Don't fucking forget it. Don't fucking forget it, man. Don't fucking forget it. Yeah, that's right. I can I tell you what. I tried playing the cello to uh, uh, to uh, satisfy my, you know, my trying to make my father, you know, proud of me. I fucking sucked. I was, I was terrible. <laughs> he said to me, he said to me, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" I'm like, "I try to tr play the cello." He's like, "You're terrible." I'm like, "Well, you know, look, what can I say?" It wasn't, it wasn't a very good, it wasn't a very good. I mean, you know, when your grandfather is a your filler, you can't play fucking Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and no matter how many <laughs> classes you take. You know, you have to like, you know, I have to have some deep, you know, seven years old. I got to take, have some, you know, deep conversation. Like, hey, you ain't making it anywhere on this one. So if you would like, we have a lot of questions that we do. You've listened to podcasts. We have this, uh, maybe, Mareko, would you like to talk about, hey, man, can I ask you a question? I, I would, but I think just one last thing. I want to, I want to talk to Neil about or hear him talk about uh, before we get into the questions. Great. Is uh, the Shokinen collaborative oh, yeah. that? <laughs> and, oh uh, yeah, yeah. I want to. I want to hear his take on it. Um, and I, I just want to hear him talk. I want to let him talk about it and and his kind of his philosophy around it and and his vision for it. Um, I, I think it's a really really cool idea. I'm signed up for it, and uh, and I want to hear it 
I want to hear it from the the source right now. Perfect. <laughs> so me and Morocco were talking about uh, when he was here in Hawaii about a lot of different things. Um, but one thing with having media the size of both of ours, which is pretty big for a knife making community, uh, we we get asked so many times, like, how do I do this? How do I do that? We met so many great knife makers that Travis is one that was asking me hundreds of media questions because they only can sell within a 60 mile radius of their home. And so I decided to create this Shokunin collaborative, which is Japanese for, um, craftsmen. And, um, the reason why I wanted to do it is I wanted to give the newer knife makers or knife makers, the same opportunities that I have. So combined with all of us together, we can get greater discounts on equipment. Uh, we can cross collaborate. We can join our media platforms together. And it's not just for knife makers. The reason why I named it Shokunin is because I want leather workers, jewelers, uh, I don't know what you call people that do jewelry, but you know anybody that crafts with their hands can sell on this format. And, uh, and it, it gives us power as a group. You know what I mean? We can, I, I come from a car club background. I'm in severed ties and, you know, that's how we've all made it to magazines and got sponsorships and got recognized. And this is an opportunity. It's not to compete with the ABS or the guild or anything like that. It's not a classification. It's just a group, a brotherhood of men and women that, uh, uh, crafts with their hands and it keeps it alive but for me the biggest thing is I don't want lines or boundaries or rules so uh, a lot of times if you meet a blacksmith and you're a knife maker you know like they don't want to if they're blacksmiths they don't oh they're like I'm a blacksmith I'm not a knife maker if you're a knife maker I'm not a blacksmith I don't want no boundaries like that like eh, I want everybody to be one you know and that when you when I want to train under some master, you know, me and uh, uh, Fader have talked about Yuri Hoffi is one of my uh, idols. You know what I mean? And and so like, there's no boundaries. Like, if you're gonna move forward and we're gonna keep things alive, Shokunin will be able to highlight guys like Schwartz or highlight blacksmith, highlight, and then we all cross collaborate our information. It creates this forward positive movement that keeps everything alive and you know there's nothing wrong with mass production i actually have some guys signed up for mass production but it doesn't matter how you get to the end result whether you put it on a cnc machine and you draw it you drew it on an ipad or whether you're a caveman like me and designs everything with a hammer or you're mareko malmasi doing fine art inside of the uh you know, pages of a blade or, or fader doing chef knives and blacksmithing uh, heritage that he has and his art background. It doesn't matter. But when you put all of those things together, how you get to that end result doesn't matter to me as long as it's going in someone's hand and is inspiring them. And so together as an army, as a group, we can make so many changes. And all of the uh, proceeds that I would receive so what we would ask is people, when they sign up, they raise their price 10%. We sell it on their platform. We help give awareness to them. We have bio. We're going to be doing bios on each maker. So you get to physically, emotionally connect with the maker and themselves. Um, and 
and uh, that that 10%, uh, some of it goes to the website to run it, but all of my profits that I would make off of it, I'm putting it into having specialized hammer-ins to teach the younger group with the with the guys, you know, and so you take guys like me and Mareko and you fade, we're all booked like three years out. So when we are selling knives on there, like a couple of knives a year, and we all can do that. We all can bang out a blacksmith knife or an extra chef knife and put it in there. But when people come to buy ours, they'll also see, hey, look at this guy with like 500 followers that's like 10 times better than Neil Kamimura and is, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> they'll be able to see all these things. And I want to give these younger makers the exposure that I have and uh and create something that's like that and then i'm going to use the money that i don't need the money from this thing like i wanted to give put it right back into working with we have some amazing projects coming up with yeah uh wounded for a lack of better term wounded warrior like basically taking some of the veterans around uh and i'm creating an event where we teach them knife making and they teach us uh, life experiences, maybe some knife fighting, maybe some sharp shooting. And then we have motivational speeches. Some of it will be small and be campfire discussions. Some of them will be large. And we got a lot of top, top people involved. Like it's going to blow people's mind. But uh, I don't want to go too far into that. But that's my take on Shokin in. But it's something that, you know, Mareko is the the chairman for it like he's the person that has helped me and he's the person that's going to help me keep the authenticity to the knife making uh because i'm so inexperienced i'm not going to sit there and be like well you know like here's a suggestion to make your knife a little bit better so that you know he's going to be the one doing all of that helping so how do you get involved how do our listeners or how do people listening to this get involved where do they go I will be tagging uh, the Instagram that's up, and then there's a website. And I got a guy, uh, Chad. He's running the uh, running everything for me. He's a super talented uh, computer guy. Like I don't even own a computer, so Chad is helping me, and uh, he's a great guy. Very patient, knows how to use that tool, and he's and he will set you guys all up. And there's a, and there's an Instagram Shokinin as an ins, at Shokinin on Instagram. So for so I've seen it just recently. It's Shokinin Collaborative, I think. All right, there you go. Sounds, yeah. That sounds great. I'll listen. It's a it's a, that whole concept is fantastic. It's very uh, uplifting for a lot of people who make. Well, and I, what I really love about it is is Neil being humble enough to use his platform. Uh, and I think, as he was saying, everybody with, you know, I, I, I don't have as many as Neil, but <laughs> using kind of my platform as well to help put people on um, who otherwise are struggling to, to find their audience in a way. You know what I'm It's It's kind of like when Joe Rogan puts me up, like he posts one of my things up and all of a sudden I get a bunch of followers. I get a lot of requests and interest in my work. It's kind of the same idea, but it's makers doing it for other makers to help put each other on because we recognize that in the world that we live in and it's only going to keep going this direction you know we're so interconnected through social media that <clears throat> the 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 kind of the the idea of competition is becoming kind of an old idea 
in the way that you know we're access we have access to millions of people through social media and we talked about this before on the podcast but because of that there there's an extreme lack of competition because of that we're happy to put people on i mean that's why we do uh you know the community showcase at the end of the podcast is just show some love and give some uh, give other people you know a bump and a shout out that helps hopefully helps you know helps them reach some more people um but i also like the 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 mentoring uh side of the, the of the whole collaborative it's an opportunity not only for for old dogs who've got years of experience like mike tyree just signed up um who have years of experience and and knowledge to share but also for then the younger generation to also share back to the to the older generation to help them figure out you know how to make use of this social media how to get the most out of it some strategies and approaches that will help them reach that audience that they're trying to reach sounds like a good idea love it it's 100 percent about the artists you, you you know what I mean, and the art form. It's not so much about uh, you know, like I'm not gonna. We're we're never gonna tell somebody like, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. It, you know, as long as it works and people love it, you know what I mean. And and if you think about the power that has as a group, you know, and when you combine all our medias together, we'll be in the millions, you know. And so we can we can combined we can make differences in the community you know it's not going to just die like it, it can never die when you're all together you know and we'll be able to fight the fights that we want and get what we want as a group what does shokunin mean is that there's a word is that is there like a it's craftsman in Japanese. So I wanted to kind of put the two together because it's like, you know, I have a Japanese heritage, even though I know nothing about Japanese stuff, I only know local culture, but it's kind of like a mix of like, you know, the, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just a name that we came up with that kind of has a collective. It's, it, 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 you know, it's part of my heritage and it's part of my American heritage, right? Like my family fought with the 442nd in World War Two, you know, like, you know, it's a mix of Japanese American. Outstanding. All right, let's do this. All right, now it's time for Hey Man, Can I Ask You a Question? This is your favorite part of the show where we essentially answer your questions. Uh, if you have any questions, hit us up on the Knife Talk podcast uh, Instagram. Send us a DM. This is your opportunity to help drive the conversation or have, uh, you know, get some help with anything that you might be struggling with or any questions you got regarding your knife making. Or sometimes, apparently, we do relationship stuff. <laughs> Once in a while. I wish we did more Once relationship stuff, very much, but by the way. I find that to be the most fun. It was hilarious. All right, so I'm going to kick this off. Uh, this first one is Brotherhood Knives. He says, what's your worst close call, quote-unquote? For example, I was quenching a knife today, and the oil caught fire, and my pliers should have been using tongs, by the way. My pliers slipped, and I almost dropped the knife. Caught it, but my arm was on fire up to the elbow, but no damage. Hooray! So what's your, what's your worst close call? Close call. Oh, man. I, I got to think. I mean, I... I mean, I've, I feel like I've talked about this before, but I've definitely been using a, a buffer and had the knife ripped out of my hands a couple times. And 
it's it's pretty scary because you know so much bad shit could happen in such a short period of time um i i have to like stop and check and make sure i don't have any new holes in my body or anything and there's no blood pouring out anywhere so that's probably what i would say have been my closest calls i had a close call actually a couple weeks ago where I, when I was making these, uh, I was forging out these barbecue hooks out of train spikes. I was, I actually posted pictures on on the, on the Knife Talk podcast was right before Blade Show, and I was I was trying to video the twist, and because you know you know when you obviously you guys know when you're when you're taking pictures of super super hot steel, the steel becomes the light source and it fucks with you can't really focus in on it. So when you're taking pictures of it as a light source, you almost you, you almost need it to be duller than it actually is. And that's why a lot of times people see if you take a picture of a hot knife, they'll say, ah, you're, you're forging it too hot. And it's actually because the steel is it's, it's so hot it radiates a light source. So I was trying to videotape me doing a twist and it fell out and it like it fell out of the jaws and it hit my the inside of my hand so like this you know 1600 degree you know uh train spike top hit where i had to shake hands so i had this like huge bandage it was it was a little bit scary because i actually i kind of caught it so it was like first for a second just bumped my hand and it was like that's why i I was like i was like oh god i gotta shake people's hands at blade showdown i fucking i had this huge everyone's like what happened to your hand i don't worry about it i caught a goddamn hot train spike is what happened (laughs) <laughs> that's where fist bumps come in. You gotta use yeah, that. Fist I was trying bump. to figure. I was trying to pretend. I was trying to be like, how can I be more of a germaphobe? If I can just, can we just wave? <laughs> can we just wave out? Your waving would be great. But it was like right in there. I had to like, I had to brought a pile of band-aids with me, and I was changing them all the time. And you know, all you knife makers, you like to give that firm vice grip handshake just to, you know, it's like it's like when dogs, you know, sniff each other's butts all the time. You give this handshake where it's like you want to kill somebody. You're trying, and uh, I was like, oh god. So I had to I was constantly changing my uh, my bandage. Try to be a tiny Asian. Uh, all they want to do is smash my hand. I'm like, cool. You're big, like, like, and I have a broken hand, like. I have a boxing fracture, I have four boxer fractures in my hand from a year ago. And so I actually put tape on my hand, too, so that people would kind of resist from squeezing my hand. But they still love to squeeze. They're like, look at me, I'm big, I'm strong. And they smash my hand, and I'm like, cool. I used to do that all the time, and then I realized, I used to do that all the time when I was younger. And we called it the vice grip. And I felt, actually, somebody was just like, you know what, I think... I think you're an asshole. I don't. I don't know why you have to like. I don't have to crush my hand all the time. So I stopped. I like. I had to dial it back because my friend was just like, you know what? Don't let be an asshole. What do you have to crush my hand for? I don't give a shit what, how strong your hand is. I don't care how strong you are either. Knock it off. So I had to. I had to really rethink my that whole uh, thing. So Neil, what was the worst close call you ever had? It doesn't have to be a knife making. Could be, you know, accident. Um. I put my thumb through a bandsaw pushing on some, uh, pushing on handle material and I cut right through my fingernail and it, it literally was like going into a meat saw and I was like and I had to immediately hold it together and super glue it shut and it's pretty gross. It is yeah, touching the bandsaw is bad. I, I had to go to that yeah. That touching the bandsaw is bad. I hate bandsaws and buffers. Oh yeah. I hate them. Nothing worse than a dull bandsaw blade. I, I usually get real nervous when I'm cutting Corby bolts off because I'm afraid that when I, I don't, 
I always cut as much excess Corby bolt off because I think that, especially when you're using bronze, it heats the material, it heats it up so much, and bronze holds heat so well. I'm always afraid I'm going to fuck up the epoxy or whatever. So I try to cut yeah. off as much excess as possible. And, you you know, the bronze, you know, it's very soft, and brass, when it's very soft, and when you're cutting through, you have a, you have a, you have a, str- you have a very... Str- strange opinion of how fast it's going through and usually it just you know that's 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 it, you have some monster core what size corbys are those in I your use, knife i use five sixteenths i love them oh they're monsters i love them i love them i love my no, they have that classic look that yeah i've never used anything bigger than three sixteenths i love it's pretty corbys. cool looking i love the corbys because i tell you i love the corbys because it just gives you if you have the right corby bolt with the right um countersink it just gives you a very, very clean transition, um, and you, all of a sudden your glue is just really a sealant because I mean the Corby is just you know it's such a great mechanical fastening. Yeah, I started using. I don't do a lot of full tank stuff, but when I do do, I got a three sixteenth to an eighth inch with a countersunk in it, and you don't have to worry about that pin like looking weird in there. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's it's awesome. It's an awesome decision. I'm a huge fan. All right. Uh, let's hop down to, okay, this one comes from Oz Hughes Bandsaw Knives. I love this question. Hey, cuties, can I ask you a question? What tool or object do you use in your workshop that has the most sentimental attachment to? So what do you have in your shop that you have in, that the tool that you have real sentimental value to? All right, well, I'll hop in just to gonna give you. Kick you it off. I thought yeah, it was go this. ahead. <laughs> Actually, when I was at the Center for Mental Arts, I was uh, I was the assistant to all the teachers. So one of the teachers was Uri Hoffi. but I wasn't really like I wasn't standing around like his right hand man. In the beginning, I was doing the cooking for the class. So it got to the point where where the old Center for Mental Arts was. We were kind of in the middle of nowhere, so it was really kind of hard to get lunch for people or dinner for people. And so I would offer to cook, and I would cook all the food. So during the day. In between the classes, Hoffie would come out and he would sit with me and just, you know, taking a break and he would grab stuff off the grill or off my, you know, if I was cutting something up, he'd take a piece and he would make jokes and stuff like that. But he never knew my name in the beginning. He called me the cook. So I had been given, <laughs> I'd been given the former, the, uh, the, the former owner passed away at Mac at the bequest, at the uh, request of the, the, the lead guy, John Ledford. Uh, who you met, Neil, um, gave me a Hoffy hammer. And um, so I was nervous. You know, Hoffy, he screams at everybody. If you ever watch the video, the YouTube videos of, of Hoffy uh, teaching Jesse James, that's how he was. He was screaming all the time. What are you doing? What are you not supposed to do? He'd give it to you. So I was nervous, and he would just call me, he would just call me the cook. So one day, we was kind of towards the end of the thing. I asked him if he'd sign my Hoffy hammer. And he says, yeah, sure. So I give him the hammer. He says, what's your name? And I said, my name's Jeff. And he just starts laughing. He says, what? I says, Jeff. And he goes, Jifa? And I said, no, 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 it's Jeff. Now, one of the things about Hoffy is his hearing, he's been deaf for a long time. So his, with the power hammers and everything like that, his, he, 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 tune, he tunes, he'd been tuning down his ear, uh, his hearing aids to the point where he wasn't really hearing what, anything you're saying. That's, so, so he starts laughing. And I said, what's so funny? He goes, Jifa? Your parents would name you Jifa? I'm like, no, not really. It was Jeff. I said, what's Jifa? He goes, Jifa in Hebrew is garbage. He said, but it's not just garbage. Jifa is sewage. But not, and then he started, I looked at my, scrunched up my face and he goes, but don't be, don't be upset. 
It's it's the best garbage. It's the best it's the best part of the sewage. So he's just laughing, 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 and I said, "Can you sign my hammer?" And he goes, "Absolutely." So he writes in Hebrew. He writes blah 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 in Hebrew. I don't, obviously don't re- speak Hebrew, or I don't even read it. And then he wrote Hafi at the end, and then I, I, I was so happy, and I, and I sent a picture to a friend of mine who's Israeli, and my Israeli says, "What did he write?" I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He says, "To my." To my dear sewage, love Hoffy. What the fuck does that mean? So I had this hammer, this Hoffy hammer, <laughs> that it was addressed to. He called me garbage for quite some time. So I always liked that, and I I still have that hammer, and um, it's that to me. I'm not a sentimental <laughs> guy, but but the funny thing is, is, he never forgot my name. So all of a sudden, it's just like you know, hey, we're sewage. Go get go get Jifa. So I was Jifa for another couple of years, and then all of a sudden, he started calling me Jeff, but. Yeah, he's so like our, you're the best. Your nickname's Turd. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he was like, but it's not just the worst sewage. It's the cream of the crop of the sewage. It's like the, the best turd. Part of the, That's what yeah. he's saying. It's the turd. Yeah. It's the fertilizer. That's right. You're the best sewage of all time. Oh so yeah, my Hoffy hammer. And I was actually looking at it this morning, and I, the sharpies all written, all taken off. But there, yeah, he started calling me. He called me garbage for quite a while. So I would, I would have to say, my the thing I'm most sentimental about. Is that what he's asking? Yeah, cool. sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I would say mine is actually my journal. Uh, I I draw and write down all kinds of ideas and um, and concepts. Many I haven't even had an opportunity to play with yet. Um, but I was just trying to think while you're talking. Like, if if my shop caught on fire, what would I be the most bummed to lose? Yeah. And I think my journals would definitely be the things that I would be the most upset about because everything else that I have can be replaced. Um, But all those, like I have journals with entries from years ago that I've just like, again, just concepts and ideas and drawings and all kinds of stuff that, um, that are based around knife making that I haven't had an opportunity to play with. Um, I would be bummed to lose them the most. Um, So that's what I got. My journals. I can just see you every morning. Dear diary, I would like to make the best Damascus in the world. Neil, <laughs> see, I downtown. Don't have that issue. Oh. I don't have that issue. I, I just like, I'm like, yay, it's stuck. Let's make it into a night. <laughs> Dear diary. Dear diary, I wonder what I'm going to do today. Oh, Neil, downtown. Nice one, Job. Uh, Man. What, do you what got, is the guy know? saying? A tool, like uh, something in your shop, item? something in your shop that you have a, has a, a, the most sentimental value to you, like oh, something that man. you just like you have that you love. Well, if it's a tool, I never travel without. I always take my hammers. I have ha- these hammers made by Nitsen, and uh, I I just travel with them. I never go anywhere without these this at least one hammer. Um, but as far as a sentimental thing, Michael Quisenberry forged me a knife, and it's Damascus. And you can put a pair of calipers on this thing. It looks like it's uh, a CNC cut, and then texture is added to it. It's symmetrically perfect. And he thought that I would finish it and sell it, you know, because it's Damascus, and it could be like a collaboration knife and stuff like that. And I told him, absolutely not. So I told him, I want to leave it forged. And so he signed it and he gave me, uh, it's signed by Michael Quisenberry. And then he wrote, smart hand, dumb hand, because that was his advice to me. <laughs> he so says, uh, 
when you're forging, he said, you know, your right hand is the dumb hand, the left hand is the smart hand. And like, I pretty much have two dumb hands. I'm an animal. And so he helped me refine what I'm doing and constantly be smart with my left hand, you know? And that, that was the, some of the greatest advice. It's up my forging level. I used to, now I'm not just swinging hard. I'm swinging with precision, you know? I tell you what, <laughs> when I, I got, became such a better blacksmith after I took a power hammer class, because when you're doing power hammer work, whatever it is, you're not, all of a sudden the hammer isn't, isn't a part of, you know, your, your hand hammer isn't even involved. So you're focusing on your managing hand. So, so what happens is, is it translated for me is instead of when I was, when I was concentrating on my form or my hitting, when I was hand hammering, I was actually focusing on one spot on the anvil. And then I was using the managing hand to move the material. And it gave me a lot more precision and efficiency during the heats because I wasn't just all over the place on the anvil. That's a huge, I mean, that is something that I think a lot of people um, address in terms of how do you get better as a blacksmith or a bladesmith. And a lot of it is that what's the ratio between your hammer hand and your managing hand and where, what should you be focusing on? Because it is like drumming to the most part. I'm not, you, you're doing two things at the same time. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's a, it's a crazy thing. And going back to Mareko, I have pages from Mareko's uh, little diary there. That, that <laughs> diary is worth, worth millions, bro. If, if big Damascus companies ever got a hold of that thing, they would freak out. I have some, he takes shots of his diary and he sends it. He shares his diary with me. <laughs> oh. You gotta stop calling it a fucking diary. <laughs> Dear diary. I'm sending this one to Neil. Uh, I want to have a leather bound <laughs> book made for you that says, Dear Diary. <laughs> it's just gonna be bad, dude. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so funny. That is so funny. All right. Here's this a- next one is this next one is from South Bay Forgeworks. He says, "Hey guys, I'm looking to get the cleanest impression with my touch mark. I'm wondering if the steel is on the cooler end, like dull red or hot, like orange. I'm striking towards orange, and it it is nice, but not crisp. Thanks for the info, you guys. Pump out to the masses. So he's looking for help with touch mark. What temp?" What temp uh, is he? Should he be hitting it at to get a, not only a good impression but a clean and sharp edges as well? Am I the well? No, everybody here has a touch mark, right? Yeah, um, not me. Oh, I. I mean, go ahead, Jeff. One thing I'll say that a lot of people don't realize, and this is something I, I learned recently, is you got to get rid of all the scale because if you if you if you hit your punch mark hot and you have a lot of scale on it. It's gonna make this the touch mark not look as uh, it's not gonna make it as crisp. The other thing is is how your touch mark is designed. I actually got a touch mark made, and every time I would hit, it almost made like this because of the positioning of it. It there it almost made it like the Superman. I had a superimposed stamp on the outside that was not mm. really part of the. It was part of the 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 physical stamp, but it wasn't part of my touch mark. So I actually ended up taking a grinder and cutting away a lot of where that um, that excess material was to kind of make it more of a crisp 
touch mark. Um, in regards to, you know, a lot of it has to do with how your touch mark is made. My, one of my touch marks is very on the dull side, and it spreads the force out, so it doesn't really incise very crisp. But um, what do you think, Neil? I mean, I had a handmade one in the beginning, and it sucked. But, I mean, that 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 stamp is like the first 150, I think it's around 150 knives I made was with that stamp. And then the rest of the knife, no, maybe, uh, I don't know, 200, I don't know. And then uh, I actually found Buckeye Engraving, and they made me a bunch of stamps and theirs are so precision and so clean like they do such good work but as far as temperature goes i stamp mine at forging temp so what would move steel well for you that's where i stamp it and i just i pound that i pound it bro. i just i give it i don't try and give no dainty stamp because i don't want to worry about you know grinding through it and i just I just beat that thing in and then I normalize and all that afterwards. So don't worry. Like, forge it hot. You know what I mean? That's my opinion. I'll tell you, you know? what. Another thing I learned from uh, uh, the my boys, uh, Jesse Savage, made me <clears throat> a soft hammer out of mild steel. And I started using the soft hammer and it's all drive. Because of it's soft and it gives when it hits the end of the uh, of the, the stamp. You oh, it's actually, like a dead blow. It's like a dead blow. So you actually get all the force of a regular hammer, but it's taking away some of the impact, and it drives the uh, stamp in better than a hardened hammer. There's no, like, uh, I don't know what the, the the physics behind it is, but you're, it is exactly like that right. It's like a dead blow. So I was driving, I would drive the touch mark deeper with more uh, more force as opposed to impact, if that makes any sense. That's interesting. I was so shocked. Instead of, so, so what you mean is instead of rebounding, it's just all that force is transferring. Exact, exactly, exactly. Because yeah. I did a lot of I did a lot of hand stamping <clears throat> cold. Like a lot of my hand stamps were cold, and I was getting better results using the soft hammer, the soft steel hammer, than the hard steel hammer. It wasn't just it wasn't ricocheting off the top of the steel, and also. N- Number two is I used to hit it so hard I'd fl- I broke two windows with uh, my touch marks. They fly out of here. I had to put them in. I mean, I have I used to put out. Yeah, I had to put them in vice grips because I would hit it, or there would be you know grease on the top, or there would be something slick, or I wouldn't hit it 100. percent It would shoot out, and I went through this brand new window twice in like two days. It was like I ruined this brand new window twice. So. Uh, my, and then my friends got embarrassed, and they made me a pair of tongs because they were like, "I'm not, I'm, you're not in this shop. You're not using, you're not using vice grips." So um, I, I use vice grips. I it's got the, a, it's great. I got I got a when I was a teenager, I bought saved my money and I bought a pair of Jesse James like black <laughs> vice grips, and I it's still my favorite vice grip. So I have Jesse James vice grip on my stamp. But you know you're a welder, and you can just weld a handle onto yours, right? <laughs> I know, I know. You know what? You're, I'm so stupid. You're right. You're absolutely right. I'm just, I'm so lazy. But my, fr- I know. You know, you're, you're 100 right. I've never done that. I, I, I should have done that. But I, I uh, my guys made me a dedicated pair of tongs for my, my, uh, my stamp. But the vice grips are good for, for hand stamping. All right. And the next question comes from Hillside Forge. Hey guys, here's one for you. If you could go to the final round of Forge and Fire, both of you have. And you could choose the final weapon. What would it be? 
Like, all right, so you both are at the final round. You both have been there twice. You have the opportunity to choose the final weapon to forge for the championship. What would you choose? Mm. <laughs> uh, we've both been there twice. Right? Yeah, you've both been there twice. It's your perfect yeah. guys to answer the question. Uh, well, I'll, 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 I'll go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, no you, you go, go ahead. ahead. Shit. All right, I'll go. Uh, so after I was on Forge and Fire the first time, I never really spent any time looking at ancient swords and, or like historical sword weapons and stuff like that. And so I started cruising around, and one that I found that I really liked was from the Ottoman Empire called a Yadagon. And it's just like this, it's a saber, uh, it's long, and it's it's got like this recurve to it. So it's got this long, gentle recurve to it, and it's freaking cool. And the handles are usually actually made from like the ball and socket joint of like a large animal of some, some sort. So it's got this huge stop at the pommel of the handle. Uh, the the other one that I really like is a is a it's like a Eastern European shashka, and essentially it's a, it's also a saber and it has a very similar aesthetic, and it's got the long recurve kind of blade to it, super slick, super very simple blades, but I just I like the lines of them a lot, and I really would love to, love to actually make those just for funsies, just for funsies. Dear diary, dear cool. diary, dear diary. <laughs> <laughs> Dear diary, I'm gonna make a shish. I knew I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's Neil's fault. I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, I think I would want to make a samurai sword because that's the only type of sword I really make. Like I don't know much about weapons. Like I wasn't a knife guy before. You know, I build lowriders. You know, like I, you know, I had a pocket knife, but that's about it. So I don't really know. I've done a lot of research on. Not a lot, but as much as my dumbass does, you know, I is in samurai sword, so I'd probably want to make a samurai sword. I would not want to make something double sided because I, I, I feel like everything I have to make on Forge of Fire was double sided and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. When I when I was a kid, I was such a huge comic book fan, and I I didn't really like Thor. But I liked what he was doing. Like when Jack Kirby designed the character Thor, he put the stupid horn, you know, helmet on with the wings. But the hammer was so great because he would whip it around, and then he that in the beginning he would whip it around like a helicopter, and that's how he would fly. He wasn't just flying to fly. He'd have to whip that fucking hammer around to create it like a <laughs> helicopter. And when I got older, I used to look at that hammer. I love the hammer of Thor, but it was so stupid to me because I was wondering, I was like, why is the handle so thin? And if you look at the eye of the hammer, like the outside where the hammer comes out of the hammer, where the handle comes out of the hammer, it's like 10 times bigger than the handle. And I always thought, and so later in life, when I was learning how to make hammers from John and Cliff, I, they, what they were telling me was is that when you're drifting the eye of a hammer, it's all, it's not straight through. The hammer shouldn't, the eye shouldn't be a straight uh, tr channel. It should be more like an hourglass. So it's wide on the inside, it's wide on the outside, and then it's thin in the middle, and then it's wide on the outside of the top. So when you put the hammer in, the handle in, you splay out the you splay out the top with whatever you're with a wedge or whatever, and then you're creating more of like an hourglass to form the 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 hammer. So when I was looking at the Thor hammer, I was like, Jack Kirby put a little thin ass you know three eighths or five eighths stick, and then he's got this like 
six-inch diameter top of the hammer. And I always thought it would be fun to do a, like a real ridiculously heavy hammer that you couldn't even lift up. So that would be the Ugh. one I would do, like a like a 120-pound hammer. Like do a, do maybe, a, maybe Thor had small hands. <laughs> yeah, maybe smart, <laughs> Thor had small hands. Yeah, Thor had small hands. But I always used to look at that. It was so funny. Or maybe they came with a concept of, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, large potatoes makes a steak look smaller, right? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love large potatoes makes a steak look. So Dear. you just wanted all hammer, no pota- all meat, no potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> I love large hammer, large steak makes the pota- large potatoes makes the steak look smaller. I, I tell you what, I think one of the reasons why, I think comic books are the reason why we have no idea how things are actually made. I think that's the reason why most people, when they think of an anvil, when they see an anvil, they only know it from Roadrunner. No one has any concept because we've these comic book writers, you know, they make Wolverine and all these guys, and they're like, there's no actual concept of how any of these things are actually done. So all these people, they, you know, they think that Thor, you know, the hammer of Thor is what the size of a hammer should be. <laughs> there you go. All right. You want to hit another one? Yeah, let's hear it. All right. So our, I'll do it. <laughs> let's hear it. <laughs> I'm, talking to my, I'm talking to myself. Yeah, dear, or the uh, diary. So you do. Fox River Knives. Or, sorry. <laughs> Fox River Blade says, hey, cuties, if you could collab with any maker, dead or alive, who would it be and why? That's a good question right there. That's a good question right there. Uh, I'm going to go train with, uh, eventually I'm going to go train with JW Randall. Um, he's another one of my, uh, people that I look up to, not just in knife making, but in life, he's a great father, a great representation of the American craftsman. And that's somebody that I am trying to, uh, I've already talked to him about it. We're just trying to set a time frame. For me, I would I would go with Jake Pounding. He's a he's a guy from New Brunswick, Canada. He's uh he's actually still kind of kind of a young guy, but he he used to do a lot of sword making. He's not really in it anymore, but he used to do these incredible carvings and uh, and and uh, what was it lost wax casting for all the hardware and stuff. But just his carving skills are insane and i before let's see i think while i was still working for bob actually i i was looking around at stuff and i came across his work and it's absolutely phenomenal um and he does really very cool uh kind of like historically very historically accurate style blades um and then he does these elaborate engravings and and so he he like builds these stories around him. he's kind of like a like a history nerd and, and a fairy tale nerd in a way where he builds these stories around the, uh, the weapons that he makes. But I mean, kind of that, that is a very uh, kind of Euro Euro centric kind of tradition of, you know, of all the, you know, what is it? Excalibur, like they're all the legends and stuff around Excalibur and who made Excalibur and the history and story around it and, and how all these weapons have their own names. And so, for him, I, I it would really be about you know the the uh, the carving though. I really admire people who do carving work in their handles, and uh, it's really inspiring. So yeah, Jake Pounding. I uh, I think that I would have to dig up a couple dead guys, and it would be um, I Francis. I wish I could have learned under 
two guys. Francis Whitaker was a famous American blacksmith who really kind of championed the modern day version of, actually, you know what? I'm going to do three guys. Francis Whitaker, <laughs> Samuel Yellen, who was, uh, Samuel Yellen was one of the most important um, blacksmiths in, in kind of closer to modern day, where he really does, he really used the Art Deco style of forging to create these incredible designs. Um, uh, and then the last would be Freddie Haberman, who was Hoffie's teacher in the Czech Republic, he was like the champion of that Czech style, and um, you know the the whole innovation. I, I, all three of those guys were so much about when you talk about blacksmithing and where do we go from here, and what's the role of the modern day blacksmith? It's the idea of innovation, and one of the things I feel like we've as blacksmiths and bladesmiths, I think we need to strive for where. How can we be more relevant as in in the modern day? And when I look at you know what Samuel Yellen did, and um, Samuel Yellen did so much, um, he, he he his work really kind of like really worked well with the Art Deco style of you know angles plus kind of biological things, and he really kind of helped kind of create this modern day version of what a blacksmith does. So uh, Samuel Yellen. Uh, Freddie Haberman and uh, Francis Whitaker, those three blacksmiths are just like, you know, it's unfortunate they're dead and I like it would it'd be great if they're what they taught would be really I mean, Hoffie's kind of teaching his version of what Freddie Haberman was doing and it'd be great if there was that kind of like uh, passing along of information. Mm. So I'm going to take a second and talk about our sponsor, Combat Abrasives. Uh, they've been incredible supporters of us and for you guys. If you go to combatabrasives.com and put in uh, the, the code KNIFETALK10 at checkout, you'll save yourself 10%. Um, but, it, you know, these guys are, are doing an incredible job offering awesome abrasives. I absolutely love them. I actually just, I forged uh, the first knife I forged since I've been here back in Washington. And part of it was setting up the tiles and, you know, just a 60 grit shredder cleaned up all of those tiles really easy peasy, uh, took no time at all. And it welded up super nicely, came together super well and forged out crazy. It, for, it forged out really well to to, to say the least. So, but they offer all kinds of stuff from epoxies to handle materials. They offer all kinds of crazy abrasives, not just for knife making. Like they, they create abrasives for all kinds of industries. Uh, actually, somebody just posted up uh, the other day that I, th I think they must have gotten a hold of Combat and Chris said, hey, Cash. I got this, got this crazy metalwork. Yeah. Yeah. I got this crazy ass grinder that's six feet, like the belt needs to be six feet long and four inches wide or something like that. And uh, they took care of them. And so, inexpensively too, he was shocked at how yeah. how reasonably priced it was. Right. Yeah, Chris was pumped. And so, if you have some oddball stuff or some old machinery or whatever, you just have some specialty uses. Get a hold of them too directly. Give them a call, and they can help you out cutting all kinds of different lengths from basically anything they offer. Um, but get a hold of them; they'll take care of you. Go to combatabrasives.com. Knife Talk Ten at at checkout for 10% savings. And also, if you get some of their gear and you're using it, make sure you tag them up, tag us up. We'll share it back out and make sure you get a good shout out. And uh, yeah, we Garrett, love combat. Garrett was very surprised at how many times he's they're tagged in people's Instagram stories. So you're doing a great job, guys. Keep it up. Mm. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, 
when I first started making knives, I was buying belts off of eBay, you know, and I was paying more for shipping to Hawaii than I was for the belts. And I had uh, 3,000 followers, and I emailed Sammy, you know, I was like, and then I called Sammy on the phone, and I talked to him, and I told him, hey, can you just stuff as many belts as you can in a flat rate box for me when nobody else would do that for me, you know, like uh, make a special package for me. And then uh, I ended up being joined on their team at like, uh, like under 10,000 followers. And I got asked to be on team combat. And so that's where my loyalty is with them. It's not just they make a great product made in America right there in California. Like, the, you know, I've toured the facility. It's amazing. They're, hand, they're sewing on sewing machines, the buffing wheels. They're cutting them out of whatever that linen it is. And, you know, and then they're pouring the buffing compounds from big melting casting pots. And, you know, and then they're, they're fusing the belts together and cutting the belts. And, uh, not just because of that, but because their ability to kind of help out and and is also very supportive in the in that in supporting the knife maker and understanding that the knife maker this is you know they're they're not rich and so they're very cool people. Sammy Garrett, Sammy's not there anymore, but Garrett, they're all great guys. Garrett's a good dude. I had a nice long conversation with him. He's awesome. He's actually sending me some uh, uh, combat, uh, some shredder belts to take with me to Barcelona next week. He was he was just super oh, cool nice. about that. All right, let's hit up a couple more questions and we'll see where we're at. All right, the next question comes from here's a here's a good one. This comes from Stonehouse Forge. Hey man, can I ask you a question? What are your thoughts on the railroad spike knife? What do you think? <laughs> uh, it's good practice, but it's I think it's. The steel that those railroad spikes are made from is not necessarily the greatest edge-holding material um, because they're designed to be tough. They have to be tough, and so part of that is having a lower carbon content. Um, So, you know, something I've thought of uh, that I've never actually had got the opportunity to do, but Nick Rossi has done, is essentially uh, insert a piece of good steel like 1080 or 1075 and do kind of a uh, kind of a like a bit weld like you would do in blacksmithing for an axe or something like that and using the spike as kind of the handle and then a different steel for the blade um so that's my take on it it's good if you insert a different piece of steel in it i i tend to think that and it's a running joke it's a running joke the blacksmith knife and i think i think part of it is is because i don't I'm not 100%. I, I understand that people use it because it's a higher carbon seal, and I, I agree with you, it's good for practice. But I think that people get a little bit lazy when they're forging them because I don't, I, I'd like to see, I'd like to see it be something that's like elevated in the sense of the actual forging of the knife, you know? And, and, and I think that, you know, the way we do twists, the way we do how we finish it, I mean, how can you make, I, I just, I love, especially with metal sculptors, you're taking, recla- I love the fact that knife makers and sculptors are taking reclaimed objects and what they're doing is they're not completely transforming it. You see where it's come from. I think that that's why when I made my meat turners out of uh, out of train spikes, I like the fact that you could tell that it was from a, a train spike. So there's it is there is in the regards to the transformation of this found object, I think that it's a great opportunity to really show your 
artistic nature, for lack of a better word, and allow yourself to kind of like really elevate the concept in regards to the edges and stuff like that. I completely agree. I don't think I'm not 100% sure. I'm, I'm not making them. But at the same time, when I think about it, I think, well, why, why don't we try to make a real good one? You know, I think that there are a few guys who make really beautiful ones, but I think that it's unfortunate that it's just such a joke, and I think that has to do with the fact that I don't think people put as much time and energy into it as they could. Sure. I mean, for me, I've made a bunch of them, and people always go on my Instagram, oh, that's not very good steel, and I was like, it'll work good on you. <laughs> you know, oh, like, well, dear I mean, diary, like, Neil just threatened somebody on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true. Like, not everybody needs a super high Rockwell knife. Like, some true. for some people, it's part of Americana history. You know what I mean? Like, and... uh I use railroads. I have three chisels made by railroad spikes, and they sharpen in three, you know, three passes, and then they last a long time. You know what I mean? But they're super easy to sharpen because they're not super hard, you know, and I'm not cutting nails or whatever. Like, you know, so I think that when you're beginning in knife making and you learn from reclaimed steel, don't ever be ashamed of it, like, because everybody's going to be like, I only use 1080. Well, guess what? When you go on Forge and Fire and you can't make shit, that's why. It's <laughs> because you didn't take the time to learn with, in, like, with crappy steel. You know, I learned on railroad spikes, leaf springs, and farrier ass. If you can harden them and make them good, 10 series steel, other steels will become easier for them. So I, I feel it's an an important part and it's something that's very cool uh, you know to trans do a transformation on them you know and it's also a part of recycling art you know what i mean and putting your spin on it so i think it's very crucial for them to for any new knife maker to work with those kind of types of steel and i have railroad spike knives i have railroad spike chisels and they all work great you guys just know how to harden them and how to use them I love yeah. it. I love that answer. I, I think that yeah. I think that we get a little bit too uh, crazy in regards to where things come from, and I, I, and the idea of being able to kind of you know repurpose something, give something that was you know not you know great or not, you wouldn't really use it, and to repurpose it and to give it life for something. I think that's really a noble a noble thing. I I love the and the other thing is is like you know you can forge you know. If anybody, if blacksmiths who learn how to blacksmith with mild steel all of a sudden get their hands on a piece of uh, high carbon steel, it's a different ball game. You know, it's all by like, by like, by like, a, it's almost like a different forging, forging high carbon steel, especially a railroad spike. It is no, it's no day at the office. I mean, it's no day at the beach. It's, it's a, it's a production. So I, 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 I tend to, I agree with you. I, I, I've been, now that I've been using more and more, I, I think I'd like to, I think we should figure out a way to. Do it more and use his practice. Guys like Ryu, dude, he can he can get such crazy Rockwell with railroad spikes. I've seen him harden rebar in like some walnut dust, or I don't even know what he was using. <laughs> but dude, like it, and that's the importance of it, right? There may be a time where we don't have all this stuff, right? Like. Right. Like uh, fancy machines, and like I only heat treat out of a out of a forge, you know. Like I only harden my blades out of a forge. I don't use a a kiln, you know what I mean? Because there may be a time when that's not there, 
you know so you you know learning to use the old ways and using the old materials sometimes is important part of the learning process you know absolutely absolutely we got to get some walnut dust all right well we're gonna figure it out we got to get some walnut dust up in this piece i mean there is all right so to add on to that about quench the way rio's quenching there are things like super quenches that blacksmiths use that are some sort of combination of like detergent and salt water and stuff like that that uh that people do use to essentially case harden uh a steel uh especially like a lower carbon carbon steel because you if you do it right and you quench it in the proper medium um you can actually get a really hard uh high hardness but it's it's case hardened so that means it's only really kind of like the outer layer of the material so you also got to kind of Grind, forge and, and grind close before you do the final hardening and then only doing the last little bit of sharpening after it's hardened there's basically no grinding afterwards um but yeah i, I have a, a buddy who's a blacksmith here in town who's done that with some yeah like i think he he said either railroad spikes or rebar or, or maybe even just some mild and he got some crazy hardness and was surprised at and he goes out into the woods and hikes around and stuff and he was was amazed at how effective it performed as a chopping tool as a cutting tool uh for just you know case hardening so that is actually a viable thing (laughs) yeah i've heard i know a lot of guys when they make when they're when they're when they're when they're quenching, when we talk about quenching, what you're doing is you're converting austenite into martensite, and it's how you can make that conversion. A super quench is a, a used a lot of times for uh, for hammers, quenching hammers. All right. This comes from Hammer and Spears Knives. Hey, man, can I ask you a question? When did you want to make knives? When did you want... Oh, God damn it. When did you know you wanted to make knives full-time? And a follow-up question is, did you jump all into full-time or did you ease off your, quote, real job? So how did you know you wanted to do it full-time and when did you make that decision? For, for me, I, you know, I started by working for Bob Kramer and I worked for him for three years. But to me, at the time, it wasn't a thing that I had sought out. Like, if I was Will Stelter or Will Freeman or any of these other young guys, Colin Miller, who who have been in it and tried, like, done all kinds of stuff on their own before, like, you know, really get digging into it, it would have been a completely different story. But to me, uh, for me and my experience, uh, having that job was... It were, the job was offered to me, and to me, it was just another job instead of me seeking it out, I guess. Um, but it was it was after those that time working for Bob that I realized, after having a couple of years away from knife making, that I that I really loved it and I was really good at it. Um, that I wanted to get back into it and do it full time. Um, but it was still another couple of years before. I was actually able to go full time. You know, I was washing dishes. I was working in a bakery before I went went full time. And I, I semi joke that if I can't make knives, like I have nothing to fall back on except for di- dishwashing in a restaurant. So I got to make it happen. But Mosaic you know, Damascus key- bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could make the best croissant of all time. <laughs> but. Uh, I think I think the key is we've talked about before a little bit is you know you got to kind of evaluate where you're at and what you need to survive, and um, if you can get your knife making caught up to that, 
then I think that's and, and you've been able to sustain it. Um, then I think that's the best thing you can do. Like our boy uh, Jared Thatcher, you know, I think he was talking to us last time he was on the podcast. He had only gone full full time, I think, just a couple of years ago, and he's been doing this for like five or six years. Um, so. I, I think you just got to kind of evaluate your situation and figure out where you're at, what you need to survive. If you got a family to support, that's a different question. You, you might really have to figure out um, some stuff there, especially uh, with the wife, and make sure that that's going to work. Uh, because ultimately, you know, n- not a lot of us are becoming super rich doing this. Um, it's it's definitely more of a passionate pursuit. Um, and it might be a thing that is actually better off for you to keep on the side uh, as your side piece instead of your full-time gig. What do you think, Neil? Uh, I still don't do it full-time. Um, I don't sell knives for money. I own another business. Um, but uh, when I was young, my dad told me, I told him, I want to be the best car builder in the world. And my dad said, do you love it? And I said, yeah, I love it. And he said, they don't do it for a living. And oh. it always stuck with me. And I, I, now that I see all these younger makers, they think that I do it. I mean, I do do it full time. I'm in a, but I'm in a completely different position, you know? And, uh, I've owned my own company for 12 years. And so my office for my company is a knife making shop. And so I, you know, I answer all my phone calls, do all my emails, everything for my shop. And instead of having a secretary, I have a forge, but you know, um, they want to just say that they're a full-time maker, but that's not always the best answer because it applies this pressure to the passion that you have. And so when it applies this pressure, you're taking orders that you don't necessarily want. And now you're a commercial knife maker. You basically take orders, you make them. And where for me, I view it as art. And so I don't let anybody tell me how to make my knife because I don't ever want to be frustrated or apply pressure that I've got to finish this knife because I got to pay the rent. I gotta, <clears throat> I gotta finish this thing because you know I'm just making a bunch of stuff that I don't want. I think it holds back my progression and growth. You know, I think I have, I have, I have. A, I, if I wanted to, I could spend the rest of my life making Ferrier Rast Tontos. I have so many orders for those, but I don't want to do that. You know, I want to keep progressing. And so, if you gotta, you know, there's a hundred and what is there, 168 hours in a week, you can work a job. You know, if you have a family, you can be up at four. I I start work at four o'clock in the morning most of the time. You know what I mean? Because my kid is sleeping. So, you know, go in, bust it out, go work your regular job, come back, spend another hour there, eat dinner with your family, you know, and get what you want done, make what you want. But applying the pressure to go full-time is something you need to consider if you want to do it for the rest of your life because pressure is a real thing money is a real thing and if you don't want to lose your passion for knife making you might want to think about that i think that's a great answer i mean that what's what's more to say about that i i i uh, came at it a different situation because i was uh i was in a metal shop and then i got pulled out to work a friend of mine started a contracting business and he said, uh, you know, whatever. I worked for him, and then he laid me off. 
So I luckily I had a shop, so I was taking on railing jobs, and I was making sculpture for galleries, and I was helping teach knife making class, uh, uh, blacksmithing classes, and then I uh, uh, Matt Paul came in to teach a uh, blacksmithing class, a uh, bladesmithing class, and I helped him, and I was like, oh, let's just see if we can make this happen, and I made a couple knives, and then. I, you know, I started making the knives and then all of a sudden people said, I'll buy that knife from you. And then it got to the point where it was like this transition between I was selling more knives than I was making sculpture. So I, you know, I, that, that for me, that's how it worked. I mean, I was, it was out of necessity almost. I mean, it was just, it just, it was natural progression. I never said I'm, I'm not, I'm quitting my shit now and I'm going to just make knives. It was like, I was kind of free. I was freeing up. Uh, I was doing lots of side jobs. I was doing railings with a friend of mine. I was also making sculpture. I was much more independent. And I just kind of like, it was like a very easy transition for me. But, you know, like you guys were are saying, it's not like, I mean, it's a, it's a daily struggle in terms of like the finances. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sipping, sipping champagne and, and eating, eating steak all the time. <laughs> I mean, this is like, you know, we're, we're working hard, and uh, we made a. My wife and I made clear, conscious uh, budgets in regards to what we do and how we do it. And you know, I work at least six days a week. I'd work seven days a week if 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 it wasn't for the fact that I really want to spend more time with my family. But uh, I think that the, there is this weird, there's this weird idea, and I think a lot of it has to do with what you were talking about in the beginning, Neil, about how we perceive ourselves on social media and then what is the reality of the situation are we able to say are we able to say i'm you know i i i make what i want and then you buy what i want or do we have to say in order for me to make more money i'm going to need to bend and if this guy wants a specific type of knife maybe i should make it the way he wants it and is it is it uh you know is it making me sell out to what i want to do i i think that there's a lot of in a lot of um a lot of truth to that too but at the same time we're also making something that's very desirable you know this is this is stuff that people can actually use and that they can use to either feed their family or go on a hunting trips or this is something that you're kind of you know it, there is a value to it we're not making like fly swatters yeah you know when i first started following you i was like why does this guy do stock removal? I, I couldn't yeah. figure it out. Like I just couldn't figure it out. And I watched you and I watched you and I watched you. And I was like, you know what he's doing? Basically, the stock removal knife stuff that you are doing is your Monday through Friday job. You know, like yeah. it's something that you're willing to just be like, all right, I'm just going to, you know, it's just your regular job. And then it keeps it, your blacksmithing and your and your integral knife making and your bottle openers and your barbecue things and all, all the creative stuff healthy and alive. And that is a very smart decision. And I've actually applied that to some other knife makers. Some other knife makers came to me and was like, dude, I only get this, this. And so I tell them, hey, you know, uh, you know, four days a week, make your knives that people want. And then on Fridays or Sunday, Make something that you want. And I applied because I couldn't figure it out at first. I had to watch you for a while. And then I figured it out. Great business plan. Well, I mean, that was also, you know, I, I've talked about it with, uh, I mean, I've talked about it with a lot of knife makers. There's a lot of knife, there are a lot of knife makers who say in terms of the economics of knife making, I can either forge my knives or I can hand sand my knives, but I can't do both. 
know, there is something to be said about the time and, 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 and the way I price my knives. I want my knives. To, I want people to have my knives. So I'm not looking for, I'm looking for a knife that's sincere and reasonable. I can stand behind and I want to give people value. So yeah. I started doing more stock removal for the sake of the fact that I can, I can, it allows me to kind of keep within the confines of that value. And then my business partner, who's been amazing, is just like, I want to, when we schedule your time, I want you to have dedicated days to fuck around. Or I want you to have dedicated days to do something that you've never done before. Because otherwise, you're going to hate this. So I really appreciate his support in terms of that, of being like understanding that being able to be, you know, being able to separate them out is uh, huge in terms of, I get excited. I, I look at my calendar and I'll say, all right, I got three days coming up where I'm just going to bust out bottle openers. And that was fun, you know, and, and where I was going to bust out some whatever. I have to, I have to be able to keep the joy of, of looking forward to it. But, you know, stock removal does allow me to, you know, provide a value to, to my customers, which is really what I want. I, that's what oh, yeah, I that's always awesome. want that. I want, I want to provide value. I, I don't want to, I, I um I the interesting thing is is just a little quick story about the blacksmithing world. When I first started the C, I was calling her, uh, CMA uh, Center for Mental Arts, the youngest guy would always be put in what they used to call the uh, lawnmower department. So like the lawnmower department was in like April or May. All the farmers or the people they'd start to bring in their fucked up uh, lawnmowers, like their lawnmower decks. Or yeah, he hit like his blade, and we got a straight. So the youngest guy would always be in charge of fixing people's lawnmowers or their chairs, their chair, whatever. And it was like a joke to a lot of these guys could be like, I'm not, I'm too good to be, to be doing this. And, you know, we're working on giant railings. We do the gates to the Dakota building. We're working on that. And meanwhile, they're joking, I send Fader to the lawnmower department and you let him weld up this guy's, you know, lawnmower deck that he hit with. a. And I started to realize that the idea of what the blacksmith really was is you're part of a community that you're helping people and that you're providing a service and you're part of a community to help people. So back in the day, like they were making nails and they were making your 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 fireplace stuff and you're making your pans and your and your hammers and all the stuff that you needed. And I started to, you know, buck back this, the idea of like, well, listen, it's not glamorous, but I'm there providing a service and a value that is important to the community. So that's always stuck with me in terms of what I'm doing and what 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 I what I'm trying to do is I want to I want to be part of a community not just of knife makers but to show people you know I want to provide value and I want to I think it's important that's what the blacksmith used to do and when I think about this in terms of what's the role of the modern day blacksmith I try to think about back in the day how they were you were so dependent on the blacksmith for all your parts and all your whatever you needed for your farm or your house and stuff like that so I really try to like go back to that in terms of you know I'm not this Fifth Avenue artist who looks down on people and like oh, I just do, you know I, I was for a while I was for a while you know I I walked around and went, I was in part of galleries and I hated it because it's just like that's not really approachable to your consumer or somebody who you're interested in so I really love the idea of of bringing back that concept of what the blacksmith does and providing value and being important to the community and knowing people and i help this guy with his lawnmower weld up his lawnmower fix his blade or can you fix my my uh, an old guy brought in his chair can you fix the chair no problem whatever you want i never say no to people like that because i think that's what the the modern day blacksmith needs to kind of get back to 
Yeah, you're like, dear diary, I sharpened 200 lawnmower blades today. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Dear diary, the lawnmower department's, it's April, the lawnmower department's kicking right now. <laughs> All right, so at this point, well, let's talk about the New Jersey Steel Baron. The New Jersey Steel Baron is an incredible resource for knife makers. They, it's uh, the, the Aldo family. They're in New Jersey. They get steel. They get plates of steel, and they have certs, certificates on that steel. And one of the reasons why they have certificates on the steel, where it came from, how it was made, what heat treatment, is so they can stand behind it. So they can stand behind, they know where that steel comes from and how it was made. If you go to their website, they're still working on the new one, but, you know, this is how we are. Um, I don't know what to say. It's been a long time. I love I love Pete. Yeah, they're working on it. Pete's revamping. Pete's the best. Pete's been revamping the New Jersey Steel Baron, and I got a tour, and the place is awesome. All the guys listen to Knife Talk on Mondays, and it's just terrific. But they also well, they, do this- if they're all if they're all listening, I want to say hi to Brandy because she's the person I talk to on the phone and she's the best. Hi, Brandy. Very helpful. Brandy. Brandy. This hi, one goes Brandy. Out- hi, Brandy. Dear Diary. I talked to Brandy today. <laughs> <laughs> so you can also get stuff water jet cut. They're doing a water jet service. And that means if you wanted to do more, you know, stock, you know, stock removal stuff and you're just like, I don't want to cut them all out and I want them all to look the same. If you draw them up something, they will actually digitize it to make it uh, easy for them to water jet cut out. Um, that's unbelievable. They also have a knife maker on the premises, Dale. He's an incredible knife maker. Um, and what they do is they're not just selling steel. They're making knives too. So if you're having a problem, they're having the same problem. So they're a great resource in regards to knife makers as well. Dale's a super smart guy. Pete knows everybody. He's a super smart guy. Um, their very their website now. If you decide you wanted to try something new that you don't know how to heat, like heat treating, like Crew Forge V, you can. If when you go on to the, that part of the you know the whatever the size and the material is, it'll have a heat treating schedule that'll work for you. So New Jersey Steel Baron's a great company that everybody knows them, um, and they obviously they send things in the mail, so you don't have to worry about a truck showing up and you don't have a limit a, mi- a minimum. So go support the New Jersey Steel Baron. They've been unbelievable to us, and they'll be unbelievable to you. Yeah, and they actually, for me, they pre-cut all my stuff for me uh, and put it in a flat rate box. So I'm literally paying 15 to 30 bucks to ship almost 70 pounds of steel. That's like, amazing. They, 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 and it's all bandsaw cut, too. So you don't have this like hard shear. So when you're doing Damascus, I mean... I just have them cut them up in six inch like pieces, and I just they're ready to stack, and I just weld them and go. The, the one thing is, is they're they they have you get a you can create a relationship with them, and they're fantastic. So New Jersey Steel Baron. Craig's Community Showcase. All right, this next portion of the show is Craig's Community Showcase. Uh, and this is where we show some love to members of the community, uh, knife making, knife makers, craftsmen in general, or knife making adjacent. And uh, let's kick it off with Jeff. Who do you got this week, uh, my man? There's a young man that I met a, a few years ago, and then I actually saw him at the Blade Show this year. 15 years old, uh, Will Freeman. Will Freeman Knives. Guy is such a talented kid. I love these young guys because they're just so smart, and they're just like so willing to learn. 
And Will Freeman makes amazing knives, and he's just a great kid. He actually started doing some uh, 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 guitar picks too, out of like weird, you know, carbon fiber and animal horns and stuff like that. He's an incredible cool. mind, and uh, for such a young guy, he's a really, really thoughtful kid. And it's just amazing. I'm just so I love seeing guys. A fucking third of my age who are just so leaps ahead of me in terms of their mindset in regards to how to get things done as fit and finish the way he forges uh the way he talks i mean he's just a he's just a leaps and bounds ahead of a lot of these people that and it's inspiring to me i do like the fact that uh, i'm a 15 year old kid inspires me so will freeman knives definitely give him a follow he's just a dynamite kid and i just i think he's just great there you go uh I'll go next. I got Hilltop Forge. This is Sam Cobb out of Missouri. He's a he's a blacksmith. He makes hammers as well as forging blades and stuff. But I just got uh, a box of hammers from him. I got a cross peen, a straight peen, and a dog head hammer, we were, which we were actually talking about a couple weeks back. I, I used all of those knives yesterday. Forging hammers. Out, or used all those hammers. <laughs> Holy shit. Um used all those hammers yesterday forging out um my knife and what's interesting is you know i always see people with like two three or not always but sometimes i see people carrying around you know their own hammers they bring them to hammer ins or or whatever like neil said when he travels to to these different things he you know he's bringing his own hammers and for a long time i was like don't you just need one hammer but yesterday having all three of those hammers was a godsend and i kind of get now jeff why you're such a freak about your hammers yeah. you you literally have like 50 of those fucking things around the shop yeah um well, <laughs> you have the worst i mean bro your hammer is so gnarly hey but you get it done but that is one ugly hammer that you have and it's super heavy <laughs> Who? it's like the taunt it's the samoan version of a hammer Mine. is what Mareko has he's got this heaviest hammer you ever seen and it just has this like grounded face on it it's super and it's a french what do you call those like lock back or it's a french cross bean. it's also known as a locksmith hammer yeah it's, dude, it's, it's got it's that a... little step so you can get close to the edge of the box. <laughs> but yeah i'm glad you got some hammers but bro you get it done with that one monster hammer only you can swing that hammer dude the same <laughs> thing's like over five pounds but these new hammers from hilltop they're awesome. They're they're definitely a little lighter, which is obviously nicer on the body. Yeah. Um, but again, just to have the versatility of a straight peen, a cross peen, a dog head, to just get the work done all around. I actually uh, I did more forging on this blade than I normally do, um, especially when I'm working with the press. I used to do a lot of like almost not, what like ninety five percent of the forging on the press, but um now i i with having the proper hammers to do the job um it, it's just it's amazing how much work you can effectively get done when you have that right tools for the job and these hammers are pretty sweet and i'm really excited to start slamming out more blades with them so go. hilltop forge go give sam a follow uh and if you need a hammer you know the obviously we got lots of quality people but he's another great great maker out there uh forging out great hammers I'm down to two hammers that I only use, and those were both made by our buddy Sunset Forge. I'll only Sunset. use his two. He made me a cross peen and a and a and a, and a, fl- and a rounder that they're the only ones I'll use. And the Hoffy um, hammer once in a while. I mean, what can you do? Yeah. 
Or yeah, when you're having a bad day, you pick up that Hoffy hammer, huh? I look at him, and I, I have such nice memories. He actually forged me uh, one before he got his leg cut off. He forged me one a year ago, uh, and it was like he was so he was in the hospital, and he was oh, he apologized for it being late because he was in the hospital for three weeks. I was like, I don't have to apologize to me. Just do your thing. And he sent me his, a, a rounding hammer too. So yeah, sick. Yeah. Well, wow. what uh, you got, Neil? Oh, bro, what, what was that guy's name, Mareko, that I bought that knife from at Blade Show? Lionheart oh. or what? Charlie Lionheart? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, dude. Yeah, it was Charlie, right? Yeah. Yeah, Charles Ellis. Dude, that guy's stuff is... When he he sat next to me, and I was like, oh, what's up? You know, he's talking story, kicking back, and then... He, like, was carrying these little pots. Like, me, I don't carry a knife at Blade Show. At the end of the day, I'm sick of knives. Like, I don't even want to talk about knives. <laughs> yeah. But he had this little pouch with him, so I was like, oh, let me see what you got. Like, are you selling any of them? And I opened up this knife, man, and it was so – it's so out of the ordinary. The guy's line for design is so amazing. Like, I mean, it's a it's – a, the guy's ultra-talented, and he, like, lives it. He's got, like – Forged everything, belt, necklace, arm. I mean, <laughs> he lives it, man. It's it's cool, yeah. man. He's super talented. What is his Instagram? Charlie Lionheart. Yeah, he's yeah, very very is... innovative. Incredibly innovative of design. His his, innova- his innovation is astounding. His take on integral chef knives is definitely something I was taking a close look at. You mean like yeah. that stealth fighter he made? You made that, yeah, sh- yeah, that, that little, thing was crazy. It, it, the, yeah, yeah, well, it's got like a double chevron. It's chevron at the front of the bolster, and then the bottom of the bolster, instead of being flat, also chevrons the other direction. Dude, he is a monster. And is getting a, the, the fit up. <laughs> Charlie Lionheart. He also won the he also won uh, the even heat uh, kiln. There, they had oh, that yeah. cherry red even heat kiln. He signed his name up for it, and he got the he even got the even heat kiln. So, how, so there you go. <laughs> Go, oh, couldn't happen to a better guy. Listen, if you, I mean, if you, that's a per, that's a perfect guy to be using an even heat. The guy's a oh, monster. I'm a little jealous of him, actually. Well, I don't blame you. That's a that's a that's a Spence and Quinn made a made of this cherry red cherry red uh, kiln. That's unbelievable. Good for you, Charlie. All right, so this is our this is the time where we bitch a little bit. This is uh, where's the beef? We have beefs and we. We, you know, spout off. Usually it doesn't really mean anything, but, you know, look, what can you do? So, with that said, Mareko, you got a beef? Where's the beef? Uh, I'm trying to think. I, uh, if you got one, I, I mean. I do have one. This okay. is an old beef. Why don't this you go ahead an, and start her up? This is an old beef, and a lot of metal workers do this, and, it, and I, used to, I used to see it. So when I was when we were at a metal shops and we would go maybe we go to a museum or go to a, like something specific to uh, metal sculpture, see David Smith or some of these other guys, older guys, uh, you know, uh, Richard Serra, these metal workers would always say, "I could have done that," or "What's the big deal? I could have done that." And then you, you also <laughs> and, and 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 then and you see parents who see or you know somebody says, "Oh, my kid could have done that," and I always I always want to say, "But they didn't." You didn't. So it's these crap. These, some of these guys, they see what other people are doing, and then they're like, I could have done that. But you didn't. 
So leave it alone. You can't, I could have done that doesn't work if you didn't do it. That's, that's, that's the whole talk is cheap thing. I think a lot of people, when they see what people are doing, they have a little bit of envy, they have a little bit of negativity, and they think, well, I could have done a better job than that. Or that's not, what's the big deal? That's just a plate stuck in the ground. Be a little bit more, you should just do it. Talk is cheap is one of, I hate talk is cheap because it's like, all right, yeah, you could have done it, but you didn't. So shut your fucking mouth. It's like, you need to get into it, you know, get into it and do it yourself instead of just talking about how you could have done something. I think it's important to be able to, you know, recognize that talk is cheap is not just some dumb expression. It is true. Intentions are everything. So That reminds me of, that reminds me of a buddy of mine who we're still close friends. And uh, I know Uh-oh. he doesn't listen to the podcast. So, <laughs> so you can rip him. Dear diary, I'm about to rip an old friend. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, it's just, he, you know, he's, he's one of those guys who's very smart and very talented. And so he basically thinks he can do anything that anybody else can do. And when I first was, when I was working for Bob, you know, I was doing all this, what I felt like was really great sculpting work for the handles and, and all these blades and stuff like that. And, just doing all this work in general and one day we were just like talking shit and maybe we were, had a couple of drinks on us or something like that but he he's like you know you know i could do i could do that though yeah like we're, i was like you son of a bitch yeah. like can't i just fucking have something like it's, if you could do it why aren't you doing yeah. it I'm like, I don't, I hate, it's just I frustrating hate it. i hate when people yeah. do that it's no, also like, a, we we make a shirt that says anything you can do I can do better. <laughs> it, people get crazy. It's like it's like um, sometimes I'll 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 meet like a carpenter, and then their logo is an anvil, and I'll say, "Oh, you're a blacksmith." He goes, "No, but I want I'm I'm going to be. Like I've never swung a hammer before in my life, but I'm planning on it. As in, if it's so easy, you know, these guys they yeah. have this idea of how hard things are, and they're just like, I I see you can, if you can do it, I can do it." And it's it's always very frustrating. I grew up as a carpenter. You know, my dad's into construction, you know. And uh, I walked into this blacksmith shop, and he had a sign that said, if blacksmithing was easy, they call it carpentry. (laughs) (laughs) And I never forgot it. Every time I saw that, I just laughed. But, you know, like, I learned, you know, I actually have a a carpenter next door to me, and uh, he's retired, and... I learned. I told him that as a joke one day, and he he thought it was funny. But I actually go there, and I learned so much, you know, from like doing little pieces, like you know, like they're they're so precise. It's not like metal where you can just weld on more or beat it out farther, yeah. you know. That's a good one. That's a good one. What do you got, Mareko? Uh All I got actually this week is a follow up. Actually, last week, and I want to thank everybody. Who reached out to me i my beef last week was about myself and my issues with procrastination and shit like that and i actually had a few people reach out and uh they gave me some references to books or you know express that they have the similar issue and i actually got a hold of a book uh i think actually that day uh from this woman it's an audiobook from this woman named mel robbins and it's called the five second rule and it's not the, you know you drop some food on the ground you pick it up and eat it it's a it's a it's a it's a book about initiative more than anything and she's got this rule called the five second rule and literally when she you know she knows she's got to go do something like you you got to go hand sand that blade but you know you'd rather go forge another knife 
but you got to fucking handstand that blade. So this this rule is is a way to kick yourself into gear and do the shit that you actually got to do. Um, and so basically the way it works is she counts down five, four, three, two, one, go. And at the go, she no longer has to make a decision. She knows what she's got to do. She's now got to go do it. And uh, it, it's a it was a really good listen. Uh, you know, she's she talks actually the same way. You know, she swears up a fucking storm throughout the whole book, and she's it's a really good story. Uh, talking about her own personal experience with procrastination and depression and struggles with work and shit like that, and how she worked through it. And, you know, I I thought it was really powerful, and I really liked it. And uh, so, as a follow up to my beef last week, I thought I'd refer folks to that. Uh, I'm actually going to go listen to it again this week. Outstanding, <laughs> especially when I when I find a book that I really like, I listen to it at least two or three times, um, just to really like nail down the message and keep it you know in my head because otherwise it just floats away. And, and then I listen to a podcast where Joe Rogan's getting high as fuck, and I can't remember <laughs> what the audio book was about. Anyways, so no, I mean the. You know, I told you from the day I met you, like, I, I don't have envy for you because you have so much talent and you're so smart when it comes to uh, reverse engineering Damascus and coming up with new ideas and new techniques. Like That's why I got a diary. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> your, your abilities, it, it's hard to, for you to not always wanting to be breaking new ground and and like for me, I just have determination. I don't have talent. And so that's why, you know, like I say that talent is the horsepower, you know, determination is the torque. And, you know, if you know anything about racing, you need torque. And I'm glad that, you know, uh, I don't have that much talent. I just go to work every day and just make stuff. But I mean, for you, you're just so talented. It's it's going to always be a struggle, but it's it's cool to see you, you know, you know like addressing that because like one of the things is is that it's just people want to look at themselves in the mirror and and see a complete person and then that's how they know what they need but the only way you're going to see that is knowing what you're not and and mm -hmm. once you can figure out what you're not and you work to your strengths you're golden bro you know yeah. to your diary yeah. neil just blew my doors off that was awesome, dude. That was awesome. <laughs> Neil, what do you got? Uh, my beef. My beef. My beef is Here we go. giving things labels, which gives it power. So I think that my beef is that everything is so divided. And I think media and the world that we live in creates victimized, like, allows people to victimize themselves and to create division. And that is my beef. So when you are, when someone, when you tell somebody, oh, you know, like, uh, le let's just say like, uh, you know, oh, I'm, I need to lose some weight, you know, I'm unhealthy. And then your friend will be like, oh, bro, you're big bone. Don't worry about it. You know what I mean? Or whatever. They're like, we live in this world of victimize, victimization. I don't even know if that's a word. Yeah, but sort of you know what I mean? You know, we, we live in this thing where we get, we just fluff each other up and say that it's okay. You know what I mean? Like, oh, if, you know, you screwed up, it's okay. It's not. You know what I mean? And so we, we start giving these things labels and things like that. And it creates division. So whether... 
you know, and that's one of my beefs. But the other beef is when you give yourself labeling like, oh, I'm a vegan or I'm a hunter. No, no, no. We're humans. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they, with preferences, that's it. Like, I don't like Fords, but that doesn't mean I can't be friends with a Ford. You know, I'm a Chevy. I grew up on Chevy and Cadillacs. There's, there's, no, there's no division. You know what I mean? So whether you're a blacksmith or a bladesmith or whether what you do is you take orders for knives and you make knives or you're an artist and you make what you want to make, there, there needs to be no division. We need to stop allowing things to give titles to them so that it gives it power. We need to take away that power. And that's why when, when I did this Shokan and Collabor Collaborative, I didn't want to just call it like forged, you know what I mean? So only guys at forged knives can be in it. Right. That's not the point. You know what I mean? It, it, it's I, I follow tons of stock removal guys because of they're so clean. Their work is so clean. Their fit is so clean. A lot of times as forgers, we can just be like, oh, it's rustic. It's brute to forge. You know what I mean? And so as artists, if we can come together and stop labeling things as like this is my way or the highway and keep open mind an open mind like if i went to steve schwarzer and i told him well i learned from Mareko malmasi and i only dry weld i wouldn't have learned what i learned you know what i mean we were dumping flux on the ground and rubbing some of the billets on the ground because we spilled too much flux on the ground you know what i mean like we were yeah. just breaking down barriers and and the the amount that i had learned is invaluable and i want that for the people in the collaborative is to that see that oh you're a leather worker cool we need that and it goes back to the blacksmithing and the people being you know we were creating a, a service for people right like you were talking about and so we're creating this ability to one place to go to where you can get anything that's handcrafted and when things are made with passion there are 10 times better, you know? And that's a show. Amen. Man, Neil, I cannot, we cannot thank you enough for coming up, waking up early to be on no. this show. This was unbelievable. You're an inspiration, what you do, regardless of whether or not, however you feel about yourself, you are do inspire me in terms of how you live your life, and I am a very appreciative of you. So everybody go follow. What's the what's the name of your collaborative again, just so you, we get it right? It's Shokanin Collaborative. Shokanin Collaborative. Go follow all of our sponsors, and if you want to follow us on Knife Talk Podcast on Instagram, hit us up. Go on to all the different ways you listen to pod our podcast and give us a five-star review. It helps the show. Um, thank you, Mareko, for being here. Sorry, Craig. Oh, yeah. Thank you for taking a knee. I'm glad you, I'm glad, you know, he'll be back next week. He needed to take yeah. care of a couple things, but thank you for listening to the podcast. This has been a lot of fun. Um, and uh, we'll see you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.